All right, and welcome back to another episode of the Rad Dads Podcast. I'm Rob. Sal's not with us tonight, but tonight I'm joined with Rick Capriola. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I appreciate you uh, inviting me to the program. My name is Rick Capriola. Um, I have been in in the addictions and mental health field for well over two decades. Uh, Started out uh, uh, in education, actually, for a long time, and then transitioned over to working at a mental health crisis center, where I uh, worked with a a number of people who had a mental health issue, as well as a substance abuse issue. Uh, Went back, got some training in education and addictions, and then uh, accepted a job at Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital where for over a decade I worked with both adolescents um, and adults diagnosed with mental health and substance abuse issues. I retired from there a little over a year ago and set about to write this book, The Addicted Child, a Parent's Guide to uh, Adolescent Substance Abuse to help parents become better informed about this issue. That's great. That's great. And you're, you're a father yourself, correct, Rick? I am. Uh, My son is uh, now in his uh, mid-30s. He's a paramedic here in Texas. Um, I raised him uh, pretty much uh, by myself after his mother passed away with ovarian cancer when when he was only about two years old. Um, So I've gone through the challenges of being a single parent, gone through the challenges and and really the blessing of watching him grow and develop into uh, uh, the man he is now. So uh, I'm very proud of uh, of the, the work that he's done and how far he's come but definitely being a father has been uh, one of my uh, one of my greatest blessings I 100% agree with that is is being a father is is, you know one of the greatest blessings I've ever been granted and you know that's why we that's why I started this podcast is really to give back to people pretty much the same reason you went into uh, substance abuse yes So, so can you in your book you talk about adolescence addiction can you tell me the difference between adult and adolescence addiction Yes, that's a very good question. I think there's two big differences. The first is in brain development. Adolescent brains are in the process of developing. They're in the process of maturing and, and putting together those, those connections that become so vital when we become adults. And our brains uh, don't become fully developed until around age 24 or 25. So that adolescent brain is in the process of maturing and developing, and it, and it becomes very vulnerable. Um, adults, on the other hand, ad- adults who are addicted, uh, their brains already develop. So the first big difference is in brain development. Adolescent brains are not developed. Adult brains are. Uh, the second big difference is in terms of consequences. Uh, adults who are addicted to substances many times have faced consequences, catastrophic consequences. Uh, they may have lost a, a, a relationship. They may have lost a marriage. Uh, they may have lost a job. Uh, they may have been incarcerated. These are these are catastrophic consequences that many adults who are addicted face. Adolescents, on the other hand, they very rarely have faced catastrophic consequences. Usually the biggest consequence that they face is their parents coming down on them or restricting them or grounding them, but nowhere near the type of major consequences that a lot of adults who are addicted to a substance face. So I think those are two differences, brain development and uh, consequences. Got it. And can you, can you define adolescence? What's the actual ages? Is it 25 and, and below or what's the starting age range for that? 
Generally, the ones that I have treated have been anywhere from uh, their preteens, uh, 10, 11, and 12, all the way up to maybe 18 or 19. Uh, when, when I was at Menninger, once they turned 18, we considered them to be an adult and they could not be on an adolescent unit. So I would say generally the cutoff would be around age 18. That, that's incredible. I would not have thought age 10. Like, wow, I couldn't even, I have a 10 year old. I couldn't even imagine that. Generally, what, what we tend to see is kids who are that young, if they're getting into a substance, it's most likely to be an inhalant, which they can find anywhere around the house. Many household cleaning project uh, products are inhalants, might be glue, might be paint, might be thinner, uh, could be markers, you know, a lot of these substances we have around the house um, that, that we use for cleaning products, uh, they can be used as inhalants. And, and the danger with that is inhalants give a person a very rapid high, but it doesn't last very long. So the kid tends to use it over and over and over again. And if they're eight or nine or 10 or 11 years old, their brain really is very young. So it can be not only toxic, but can be, uh, you know, very damaging. Wow. That's, that's scary. Um, so you talk about different, um, different substances for the age range. Do you see different substances based on where you live in the country? Did you get exposure to that being based on, on your location? No, I think when we look at the adolescent population, the two most popular substances have been and continue to be alcohol and marijuana. And that's true throughout the country. It's alcohol and marijuana uh, that, that are primary substances used. There's some, there is some use of, of, of the more illicit drugs like LSD and cocaine and, and some prescribed drugs like Ritalin and Adderall, but generally those are around 5% or less of high school seniors. So kids are using mostly marijuana and, 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 uh, and alcohol. But what we have seen in the last few years, uh, which is very concerning, is a dramatic increase in what's called vaping, which is where they'll take a substance like nicotine or marijuana, and they'll use a vaping instrument, a vaping pen, uh, or something that looks like a USB drive, and it turns that substance into a vapor that they inhale. There has been, in the last three years, a tremendous surge in the number of teenagers who are vaping either either marijuana or nicotine that's crazy i think that's like almost is that the first chapter or second chapter in your book you talk about vaping i believe yeah there is a chapter in my book that uh, that that talks about the uh the the rise of in vaping among adolescents yeah that's um that's incredible so is, do you believe marijuana is a gateway drug or is there a new gateway drug in you know modern times i don't know marijuana was the gateway drug when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, it doesn't necessarily mean that because a, a teenager is using marijuana that they're going to, you know, progress on to cocaine or, or some type of opiate. I don't think they're destined to that. Um, a lot of the kids that I dealt with, they, they, they were using marijuana and they were quite happy with staying with marijuana. There's always the potential that you could prime the brain and, and eventually they get to the point where they're not getting what they want out of marijuana and, and it can proceed. To, 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 to more illicit substances, but I wouldn't say it's a guarantee. Interesting. So is, what are the warning signs if, if you suspect, you know, your, your child is, is using drugs and, and does, does it differ by the, by drug use? Well, you know, 
warning sign, one of the reasons I wrote my book was I wanted to give parents uh, a heads up on warning signs. So I have warning signs on alcohol abuse. I have warning signs on marijuana use. I have warning signs for a, a teenager, an adolescent that might be developing an eating disorder. I have warning signs for a, a child that might be uh, self-harming themselves because eating disorders and self-injury can sometimes accompany a child using a substance like marijuana. Um, but 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 as a general rule, um, uh, now let me let me backtrack just a little bit because often when I would sit across from a, a parent and I would go through their child's history of using a substance, I'd tell them you know the substances they were using and how much they were using and how often and and when they began, and I would give them the diagnosis of a substance use disorder which was either mild, moderate, or severe. They would look at me and they would say, "I had no idea this was going on." Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't think it was this bad. So I wanted to, to put information in my book that would help parents know what these warning signs are. As a general rule, um, like I say in the book, there are specific warning signs, but as a general rule, what I recommend to parents is pay attention to the changes you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone else. Pay attention to those changes you see. Don't assume that they're just normal adolescent acting out behaviors. They may very well be, but they may also be an indicator that there's something else going on underneath the surface. For example, if you have a child who was earning very good grades and now the grades are starting to decline. If you had a child that used to be very social and outgoing now becomes very secretive and very quiet and very alone. You may have a child who used to enjoy participating in sports, no longer wants to participate. You may have a child who very openly introduced you to to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You might have even known who their parents were. Now becomes very secretive of who their friends are. These are examples of changes that as a parent you need to pay attention to. If the changes last for a day or two or you know they're they're very temporary, it's probably not concerning. But if they go on, you know, for a period of time and, and then all of a sudden you notice a number of these changes, then I think you have reason to be concerned. And if a parent suspects that their child's using substance, substances, what should they do? First thing they should do is have a conversation with their child. And by a conversation, I, I mean, you know, work on developing some good listening skills. We're, we're, we're pretty good at, at, at listening to, to words so that when we're having a conversation with our child, we're pretty good at listening to the words they say, but sometimes we're not so good at listening to the feelings behind those words. And that's a skill that every father can learn. Every parent can learn and practice that skill so that when we're talking to our child, we're not just hearing the words they're saying, we're hearing the feelings that, that's underneath those, those, those words. And, and when we can do that, the child's going to feel as if they're being understood they're, that, that, that you're listening to more than just what they're saying. You're, you're tuning into to what they're feeling. So I would have that conversation first, and I would approach that conversation from the standpoint of curiosity. In other words, I wouldn't accuse the child of, of, of taking marijuana or drinking alcohol. I wouldn't threaten the child. I would observe the behavior that I'm seeing, and I would approach it from, I'm seeing this behavior. I'm curious as to what's going on. Can you help me understand? 
understand it. So the child's much more likely to open up uh, with, with that kind of a dialogue where you're coming from a, a position of, of not accusing the child, not threatening the child, but, but curiosity. I'm seeing this behavior in you. Can you help me understand why I'm seeing it? Now, regardless of how that discussion goes, because it's probably going to go one of two ways. It's either going to blow up and, and become confrontational, or you may actually learn some things. But regardless of how it goes, if you're still concerned, you need to move to the next step, which is to get some professional assessments done so that you can get a diagnosis and if needed, a treatment plan. Got it. And, it, and so you talk about treatment plan, but does a child have to hit rock bottom before a treatment plan gets put in place? Or is that something that can, as soon as, soon as you see behavioral changes, something that can be introduced? As soon as you become concerned as a parent, you, you, you need to have that conversation with the child and then you need to get the assessments done so that you can either rule in or rule out whether or not there's a problem that needs to be treated. And especially find out if there's an underlying emotional issue that might be driving your child to use a substance, because if that's the case, you need to treat not just the, the drug use or the substance use, you need to treat the underlying mental health issue as well, whether it's anxiety or depression or, or, or some type of trauma um, or an emerging personality disorder. That, if that's the case, you need to treat those as well as the addiction. Got it. What is codependency and enabling? Well, you know, we, we, we talk about enabling basically as, um, as a parent, we enable our children to have certain behaviors that sometimes aren't healthy for them. And, and sometimes we do it because we're just not aware of what we're doing, or we do it, uh, you know, because we want to become overprotective. So we can actually enable these behaviors that the, that, that the child is, is involved in. And, and then the parent finds out down the road that that it's become a very serious situation that they have enabled or allowed this behavior to continue, uh, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. Um, and, then they, and then they're caught in almost a crisis situation. Um, so, so parents just need to be aware of, of, of that enabling issue. I think we do it. I think all of us do it as parents. We enable our children to do some things. Uh, and that's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just that, you know, some enabling can, can, can involve a child venturing off into risky behaviors. Should, should a parent take an abstinence or harm reduction approach when, when dealing with these issues? No, not with an adolescent. I, I think I think the risk is too high. Um, I think the, the the parent needs to hold firm on the on on the stance that uh, as an adolescent, uh, I will not tolerate any use of a substance, any illicit drugs, any alcohol, any marijuana, because as a parent, my responsibility is to protect my child. My child's brain is very vulnerable, and these substances can do a lot of damage. So uh, I, I need to hold firm on that abstinence rule. Okay. How do mental health issues play an important role in how addiction develops in young people? Well, I'll give you an example. Most of the kids that I dealt with when I was at Vinegar Clinic in Houston, Texas, um, a lot of them were uh, using marijuana and they were using marijuana multiple times a day. Uh, most of them were very bright young men and women. Their IQs were above average to superior. 
Um, and, and when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking marijuana, uh, the number one answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. It, it, it lowers my anxiety. Um, uh, so that gets to the issue that um, in, in some cases, certainly not all cases, but in some cases, there is an underlying mental health issue that that child is using a substance like marijuana to medicate. And that drives back the importance of what I was saying earlier, to get a comprehensive assessment to rule in or rule out whether or not there are these issues. Uh, and if there are, to build them into the treatment plan. It might be anxiety, could be depression, it could be some type of trauma or bullying. Uh, um, so there are a lot of mental health issues that uh, can accompany a child's use of alcohol or marijuana or any other drug. Is there, is there a primary demographic that you're seeing these addictions take place in? No, no. And, and that brings up the, 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 the issue that um, no child is, is, is protected from exposure to alcohol or drugs. Uh, it doesn't matter where you live, urban, rural, suburban. It doesn't matter uh, you know, what school you attend. It doesn't matter how much money or income you have. Uh, it doesn't matter what church you go to. All kids are at risk of becoming vulnerable to a substance like alcohol or marijuana. There are protective environments, but no child is totally protected. Got it. And, when, and when you look at the, the availability of drugs and children's low perception of risk, because these kids really don't think these drugs are harmful and they are readily available, um, you know, it, it, it can be a very frightening uh, environment out there for kids. Yeah, I mean, when I was a child, I don't know about you, but we never really thought alcohol was harmful or marijuana. I mean, there other other substances were beyond my reach and beyond my interest, but yeah. those two were, you know, they, they were readily available. And they still are. And, yeah. and, and kids will tell us that if we ask high school seniors, how easy is it for you to get marijuana? 80% of them tell us it's very easy. When we ask them, how easy is it for you to get a drug like LSD? 30% of them tell us that's no problem. I can get that. And, and if we ask them about alcohol, of course, over 80% say that's no big deal. I can find that if I want it. So these drugs are readily available. And on top of that, when we ask kids, how harmful do you think these drugs are? They don't think they're very harmful. And, and, and as kids get older, you know, as they go up through the grades, that perception of harmfulness drops. Um, you, know, for, you know, for example, eighth graders, when we look at eighth graders, 54% of them will tell us that smoking marijuana regularly is harmful, 54%. By the time they get to be, be seniors, only 30% tell us that. I actually thought about that when you talk about smoking cigarettes too, because I feel like in elementary school, it was beaten into you. It's bad. But once you get to middle school and high school, that message isn't readily communicated like it was when you were in elementary school. It's almost like they ease up and say, Hey, listen, we've already taught you that this is bad. You, you should know this by at this point. Yeah. It, yeah. Right. Do you do yeah. Yeah, that, that, that once and done routine doesn't work. You yeah. Know? I agree. 
you know, and and I think that's that's an important point because our education system is 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 not doing a very good job on on helping these kids, um, you know, learn about substance abuse. It's almost like okay, we'll have an assembly, we'll talk about it, we'll we'll just say no dr to drugs and everything will be fine. No, that's not working. You know, what what, what needs to be done is first of all a focus on neuroscience because that's what kids are interested in. When I met with these kids at uh, at the hospital. Uh, it didn't do me any good to tell them the drug was illegal. It didn't do me any good to tell them that they might, uh, their grades might decline. They might not graduate. They might not go to college. They might not get a job. They didn't believe any of that stuff. But what did capture their attention was the neuroscience. When I could talk to them about the brain and how it worked, when I could show them the different areas of the brain and what they were responsible for, and when I could show them what a drug like marijuana did within the brain that they were interested in. So I think our education system could take a cue and begin to focus on the neuroscience in the early elementary years and then reinforce it every single year through high school might make a big difference. I agree with you. So I just want to circle back to alcohol. Now, you're saying kids find it readily available. Are they going out and buying it or are they actually like, you know, I have bourbon in my house. I'm a big bourbon guy. My, my co is a big bourbon guy. Are they taking from their parents and stealing and, and drinking that you know, I, I guess, how are they obtaining the alcohol that you've seen? They obtain it by, by getting it from friends, by buying it from friends, by stealing it from home. I had one young man, uh, you know, his, his parents had a liquor cabinet and, uh, and he, was, he was very smart. You know, he went for the gin and the vodka because they're clear liquids. So mm -hmm. he would take a little bit. He wouldn't empty the whole bottle, but he would take what he wanted and then he'd replace it with water. So, so it, it took a while for the parents to figure that little trick out. But these kids are very clever, which, which leads me to say that, that if you have an adolescent in your home. You need to secure your alcohol. You need to secure your medicines, whether they're, they're over the counter or their prescription, because these kids will get into them. They'll take a portion of them. If they're not using them, they may be selling them. So uh, if you have any of these substances, alcohol, prescription, over-the-counter drugs, and you have a teenager in your house, please do what you can to secure them. That's good advice. I, I think I have to take that to heart because mine are well, we have one liquor cabinet and then we, I have a bourbon barrel filled with bourbon. So that, that's locked up, but the key is readily available for yeah. me. It's funny you say that the, your one young gentleman put, used water to put it into the vodka or gin. I mean, I did that when I was in high school, but it wasn't <laughs> something that we did. Like, I mean, I didn't do it every day. It was like, Hey, we took a little bit. And we tried it and we're like, this is disgusting. Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> and my dad eventually caught on and he's like, what are you doing? But yeah. it was like a one and done. It wasn't uh, a weekly or monthly uh, occurrence. It's good though that trickery still still is available. It's still being yeah. used. It's still being used. That's crazy. And they'll do the same thing with pills too. They won't empty your pill bottle. So if you have a prescription, say opiate or or anxiety medication, they're not going to take it all. But they may take four or five pills, and depending how many you've got in there, because you're not counting them every day, uh, it, you may never know it. Interesting. That's that's good advice. And where would you? I guess you would have to lock it up in something other than a medicine cabinet. Oh. Yeah, just secure it, make it make it not so easily available where they can just walk in and get into like a medicine cabinet, open it up and get what they want. And, uh, you know, just just make it as difficult as you can for them to have access to it. And it's more of the opiates. It's not like Advil and Tylenol, right? It's 
it's it's going to be you know uh, prescription drugs primarily that might be uh, op it could be opiates like if we've had a, a, a pain pill uh, it could be uh, anti-anxiety medications that we might be taking or a member of our family taking yeah. uh, but it could also be over-the-counter medications it could be cough medicine that's that's what kids refer to as robo tripping where they will take a drug like robotussin and they'll mix it with uh, with uh, a soda and uh, and and they'll and they'll use that to get high. It's called robo tripping. But uh, some of these over-the-counter medications you need to be careful with too. This shit's scary. It's really scary. And and I guess how how do you educate your children to not do this? Is it just constant, you know, constant education, constant bringing it up and talking to them and making sure they understand the consequences? I think it's I think it's beginning be, building that foundation of communication. What I was talking about earlier from a young age, although quite honestly, even if you're even if your child's 15, 16, or 17, you can start to develop these communication skills where when you're talking to them, you're not just hearing their words, you're hearing their feelings, and they and they begin to to understand that you really you you really do tie into how they're feeling. Uh, I would say that that's probably one of the one of the best things that you can do. And, and, and then and, and then education and, and, and education back again to a neuroscience approach. Help help your child understand how important it is to protect their developing brain. Take some time to learn about the brain development. I've got an entire chapter in my book about the neuroscience of addiction. It's very simple. It's it's not technical, but learn a, learn a little bit about the basics of, of how the brain works and how drugs work in the brain and help your child begin to see how these drugs can work within their brain and, and the importance of protecting their developing brain. Good advice. I, I mean, I'm lucky. My my wife is a drug and alcohol counselor. So she's <laughs> been talking to my kids about it I mean, since they were like five years old, since they could understand it. And it's yeah. something we talk about very frequently. It's it's not a it's not a pretty sight watching people go into these, you know, recovery centers and see what they have to go through. It, it's tough. Or or to see somebody going through withdrawal. You know, you see somebody going through severe withdrawal and it's going to make you think twice about whether you want to put up with that misery. Yeah, exactly. I, so you talked about a treatment plan. I'm just curious and, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pulling on my wife's thoughts and what, what she tells me all the time. But uh, how do people pay for these these type of treatments? Oh, that's that's such a great question because unfortunately, uh, these programs can become very expensive. Uh, insurance companies, uh, I don't think, are, are where I would like for them to be. Where you know they'll they'll pay for uh, more than just a few weeks of treatment because if you have a a child or an adult who has a, a severe addiction, a thirty day program really isn't going to be that beneficial. Research research shows that when you have a severe addiction, the best outcomes are after 90 days of treatment. Well, trying to get an insurance company to pay for 90 days of treatment, it, it becomes really very stressful for, for parents. And then if your child has an, a serious underlying psychological issue, like many of the children that I saw at Menninger Clinic, you may very well be looking at a residential program that could go six months or 12 months or longer, um, you know, depending on the insurance that you have. Have. They may cover a portion of it. They may not cover any of it. And, and sadly, that becomes a huge barrier to treatment. Um, and I could say the same thing for, for, for adults, too. Um, 
Uh, we're just not to where we should be in terms of recognizing that addiction is a medical disease. It is not, it is not a character flaw. It is a medical disease and it needs to be treated as a medical disease and it needs to be covered as a medical disease. But, but yeah, I've, I've seen many, many parents struggle with how do I afford this? Well, where am I going to get this money? Is there, is there any state or federal funding they can tap into to possibly help fund it? Not directly that I know of for parents, but there are a lot of associations or a lot of treatment centers. There are a lot of mental health uh, organizations that do receive federal funds. So, you know, you could check with your local mental health center to see if they have access to programs. Some of them do. Some of them provide support for the family as well. Uh, NAMI, the National uh, uh, Mental Health Association, has great resources for families and for kids. So there are programs out there. Uh, I think the big barrier comes to when you're looking for actual treatment. Uh, then depending on the kind of treatment, you know, if you're looking at treatment that's outpatient, maybe once a week, okay, you might be able to handle that. You might be able to handle intensive outpatient, which might be two or three times a week. But once you get to residential treatment, uh, that can get really expensive. Got it. So Rick, this, is, this has been incredible. Where can our audience find you? I would recommend that they go to the book's website, which is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Uh, they can read about the book. There's also a parent workbook that's available that I wrote. It's very short, but I wanted to provide a resource for parents because many times parents need help too. So this has a number of exercises to help them process what they're going through, has some examples on how they can improve communication skills and how they can deal with anxiety. So both the book and the workbook are available at that, uh, at that website. Uh, if, if they enjoy reading on a Kindle, like a lot of people do, they can purchase this book for 99 cents. Uh, right. If they prefer the uh, paperback, I think that's less than $10. Um, and then um, there is also a link where if they want to send me a message on the website, they can do that. And there'll be a link that'll take them directly to Amazon where they can get the Kindle and the paperback book. So helptheaddictedchild.com is their, is their best place for them to go. Perfect. I will put that in the liner notes. This, is, this has been a great interview. So one thing we do ask all our guests because most of our guests are parents, is if you can impart a word of wisdom to fathers, what would it be? Hang in there. You know, there, there will be challenges. Uh, there will be ups and there will be downs. Um, but, but you'll get through it. Uh, you know, there, there's always a sense of hope. Um, and, 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 and get some support for yourself, too. Uh, don't go through all of these challenges alone. That, that can be very scary. It can be very alone. There are support groups out here like, like, what, like what you're offering, Rob. Um, so, you know, number one, there is hope. You can get through this. It will be a great blessing. You will learn from the experience. Um, and, and, and hopefully you'll look back and saying that being a dad was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Thank you, Rick. This, is, this has been incredible. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to, to, to talk to me and for also uh, participating in the discussion. I think that was helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Thanks, Rick, for that incredible interview. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, join the Facebook group, and tune in next time for the next episode. Have a great night, guys.